This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Paul Grain Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Dealing with historical isms. A man in a barrel. Unsought seeds. And Ouija boards. Although most Renaissance fairs aren't happening in 2020, you can still bring all the excitement to your table. Minus the jousting and roast turkey legs. During the month of September, our friends at Atlas Games are offering their card game Renfair at 40% off with code Pantaloons. In Renfair, you play characters who want to have the best historically accurate costume at the fair but lack the funds to do it. Earn coins by competing challenges, then buy choice items for your own costume. Thwart your opponents by playing clashing garment items on them. Short pantaloons and a sequined halter top? Egad! Stackable transparent costume cards let you see your character's outfit and your points too. Renfair plays two to four people ages 13 plus in about an hour. Learn more about Renfair or order your copy at atlas-games.com slash Renfair. That's fair with an E. Hip, hip, huzzah! The thump of dice, the rattle of miniatures, and uh, over on his old gatefold cover, there's uh, Peter Frampton. He's coming alive. Oh, but wait! Uh, Peter Frampton is stroking his chin over uh, an increasingly on-point uh, question. And that question is posed by Philippe Marcel, a beloved Patreon backer. And he says, Ken always says, always start with Earth. But I was wondering how you deal with all of the ism, racism, sexism, and so forth, prevalent in Earth history. Uh, Ken, how do you balance the aspirational, uh, what people uh, want to encounter uh, at the gaming table, and what they will encounter if they encounter actual historically accurate life in any culture at any time. <laughs> yes, which I think you have snuck the answer right in there, because it's not just Earth that is redolent with such things. Uh, most fantasy worlds even are redolent with such things, being merely inferior copies of Earth. The answer is to how you deal with fraught issues in game is the same way you deal with any fraught issue in game. You talk it out with your players ahead of time. So, for example, if you're running Chris Spivey's amazing Call of Cthulhu, Trail of Cthulhu setting Harlem Unbound, uh, racism is presumed to be front and center in the game. It's a core uh, component of the horror. And so, therefore, if the players have signed off to play Harlem Unbound, then yes, racism is but one of the horrors they wish to encounter. And it is up to you to do it in a uh, historically grounded uh, way that nonetheless remains something at the table that the players have signed up for. And that is true whether the topic is uh, racism or violence or body horror or whatever it is, because plenty of topics uh, cause plenty of squick at plenty of tables. And that is basically the grounding. Chris gives you lots of good guidelines for how to how to treat it and play it and uh, operate within it. In Harlem Unbound, other uh, good games that focus on this question. Uh, so, for example, Bluebeard's Bride is a feminist game basically about violence to women. It also has plenty of uh, handles on it as you play at the table, that, that because the goal of the game is to put you into contact with that specific 
element of society presented as uh, the grotesque horror that it in fact is. Other games may not. So if you are saying we're going to play a fun steampunk game with all top hats and goggles, and we'd really rather not deal with crushing poverty and anti-Irish prejudice, then that's what you're going to do at the table. And it's just going to be like, uh, oh, look at that. It's going to be exactly like the fiction written in the Victorian era, because the fiction in the Victorian era was not self-reflective and uh, thinking very, very hard about the unjustness of everyone's position. They were just going off and uh, fighting a giant uh, blimp monster somewhere in the heathen Congo, and everyone was having fun. And if that's the table you want to play, then that's the table you can play very, very easily. Uh, you know, the advantage of Earth is we have every possible version of dealing with uh, the isms, already set out for us in history and by historical uh, literature. So, for example, there are things written in the 1890s by, let's say, the, the Chinese that felt uh, maybe not as much like being the subject of adventures for uh, colonialist uh, European guys. And even you can uh, detourn a thoroughly racist fiction of at least the Edwardian era, like Fu Manchu, because even Sax Romer, who is writing a racist villain, gives the villain uh, faultlessly anti-colonial motives. So uh, simply up the degree of either player sympathy or player character sympathy, if that's a thing, uh, for Fu Manchu. And you can present Fu Manchu as a presence in your game, uh, no more and no less bad than, let's say, the Imperial Japanese or the Imperial British. He's just one more Imperial player. And uh, the, the fact that he's got a zoo of giant bugs is just, you know, some people have ironclads, some people have zoos of giant bugs. Robin, you know, you, you your defense dollars go where they will. And that's basically, I mean, it's it's sort of the, the zeroth meta level structure of get your players buy in. Uh, and that's true of anything that's going to happen at the table that might cause distress or ruction. Right. Right. And this is ultimately subjective. Uh, there is no way that you can uh, argue someone uh, into or out of accepting a given element in uh, their games. And uh, at present, I, I think people uh, we're hearing more certainly from people who want to draw lines more restrictively and consider, for example, uh, having game stats where your uh, culture or species, or as uh, D&D will still call it, race, affects what you can do. Anything, uh, there are some people who don't want uh, any indication that uh, your uh, character's biological uh, heritage has anything to do with their uh, game stats. And uh, the only way to uh, deal with uh, something that even if you think that's, well, it's, that's not how I would do it. But if there are players in your game and you want to keep them as players in your game, you uh, may want to find out where uh, people's lines are. Your, their lines will, by definition, be different than yours. And uh, if you want to have them in your game, you're going to have to say, well, what, what do you want to see instead of that? And I think we can sort of uh, divide this into two possible approaches, uh, uh, which you both alluded to, and I'm uh, going to name. And one is the let's say, the didactic uh, version that recognizes uh, the prevalence of uh, historical racism and misogyny and so forth and has uh, the characters in the world uh, behave accordingly. Uh, and then there's the aspirational one in which you are saying, well, this is just going to be a fun version of this. We're going to start off by acknowledging that in the real 1890s, there were all sorts of problems, but we're going to Deal with them lightly. We're going to acknowledge that they exist, but you're never going to have to confront them in an unpleasant way, which is basically how even today 
a, a, a television series or movie will typically deal uh, in an es- otherwise escapist work uh, with the fact that it's set in a historical period. So uh, you will have, uh, for example, all of these sympathetic main characters will have enlightened uh, attitudes that are more like the attitudes of uh, 2020 uh, than of uh, 1930 or 1895 or so forth. And uh, also another thing you can do is just say, well, in this uh, game, if you want, uh, we're going to have non-traditional casting. So in uh, the uh, theater for decades, the uh, heritage of the actors matters very little in Shakespeare or anything that isn't um, strictly naturalistic. And you will see uh, completely multicultural, multiracial casts and uh, the fact that Gertrude is uh, played by a, a black actor and Hamlet is played by a, a South Asian actor. You don't literally go, well, why are these people related? You just go, the, the actors are playing these parts and that's all there is to it. And we're just not going to worry about that. Uh, increasingly, uh, we're now and, starting and to see... And why are either of them in Denmark? You don't ask that question. And, yeah, and why are they in Denmark? It's just, we're just going to treat that as a conceit. It's a non-issue. And mm-hmm. increasingly, right. uh, we're starting to see that in film as well. The new... Uh, David Copperfield movie uh, by Armando Iannucci uses non-traditional casting. The show The Great uh, with Elle Fanning playing uh, Catherine the Great. Again, they uh, they just use non-traditional casting and that's that's all there is to it. And so you can just say, well, my character in the Paris section of uh, The Yellow King 1895 looks kind of like me. Uh, I'm Asian. That character is Asian and no one's ever going to bring it up or wonder whether it's logical that I would be the uh, scion of a wealthy American family. It's just this character is played by Hong Chao. And here's a picture of her. And that's the deal. And you also can just sort of specify, well, we acknowledge that in real life, this uh, particular occult movement is uh, heavily racist. Uh, I can treat them as bad guys, or I can uh, not have them appear in the game. What, Which do you prefer? So that people are only confronting things in the Uh, the way that they want to. And you also still have to recognize, I think, that people's desire to encounter things will uh, might change from when they uh, buy into something uh, that might change from night to night as to what they want to deal with. And so uh, when I sort of approach stuff like this, it's like, well, here's a city uh, full of warriors and it's a, you know, a martial city where all the, the armies meet together in the real world. That would be an extremely dangerous place for women. But we're just going to specify that's just not going to be an issue in this game. That's a, a ground rule that this is an aspirational version of a city of warriors to name an example that came up a while years back in my own group. So I think it's important that you not present something that pretends that the problems of uh, the past and also the, the present don't or didn't exist, but you can dial up or down after recognizing out of character that they do exist, how much the players want to, uh, deal with them and just saying we're doing an idealized version of this i don't think takes anything away from the reality of these issues i mean it, i mean certainly if you say that it does then you're indicting virtually all other narrative art with the same brush if that's a brush you feel like wielding then again it's your table build it to the specifications you prefer and you could also get away with a surprising amount both of representation and of uh, modern opinion even in a historical game, because as has been documented, yeah, in fact, there were plenty of black people in medieval Denmark and in medieval England and all kinds of medieval places. There were 
uh, even more of them in the Roman Empire, uh, including as emperors a couple of times. So what we think of as sort of this washy 1970s BBC version of the past is not necessarily the case. Like a third of cowboys were black. Some huge number of pirates were black, which we don't even know as much as we know about cowboys. So, and that's just the easy one. If you want a, you know, Chinese um, uh, industrialist son studying in Paris, it's going to be a lot easier to make them Chinese than it is American. But I suspect if you dug around and looked, there were some people who in the 50 years from Chinese immigration into America beginning to 1895 had made enough money to afford art school. And since the Academy Julian did in fact famously accept people from all nations, no one would have blinked an eye as long as the tuition check cleared. So there you go. You can, you can bop someone right in there. And in terms of enlightened attitudes or modern attitudes to pick on HP Lovecraft, because why not? One of Lovecraft's close correspondents and best friends was a guy named Maurice Moe. He was actually a little older than Lovecraft. He was, uh, so he's from even the generation a little bit earlier, not the whole generation, but he's a little older than Lovecraft. And he spent his entire life as a thoroughgoing, anti-racist. He was Jewish, so he was very much not an anti-Semite. And he was also maybe not quite as uh, vocal about his opinions about women as he was about his opinions about uh, uh, non-whites, but he was certainly, for 1925, pretty feminist. So right there in Lovecraft's correspondence circle, not even anywhere else in America, you can find someone whose attitudes you know, pass muster at all, but the most recherche levels of the Oberlin Student Affairs Committee. So I feel like if you want to play a uh, anti-racist feminist activist in 1920, it's certainly very easy. In 1890, still pretty easy. In fact, you can go back to, in America, the 1840s and 1850s and find people who are doing that. And to some extent, Abigail Adams, her correspondence survives. She's writing to her husband saying, I don't know, maybe give women the vote. And also, don't let those slave-owning sons of guns from the South uh, put one over on you. And so, Abigail Adams is, again, certainly uh, not going to be invited to teach at New York City College. But on the other hand, plenty enlightened for the Enlightenment. Right. And you want to specify uh, talking to all of the players. Uh, if there are characters who want to play activists, that implies that they want to brush up against those issues. Um, and you have to make sure that also that there are things that the players are introducing are also cool of all of the other players. So Yeah, part of building the table. Yeah. So, you know, sometimes a player will introduce as part of their backstory uh, something that is too stressful for another player. And that's why you have safety tools, uh, whether that is an X card or whatever the safety tool of the day is that you're using. And... Um, so you also need to be aware of how much you want the, the the other players to introduce material. So I've, you know, had cases where someone was wanted to play an upper class uh, English twit with all of the uh, imperialist attitudes that implied. And, you know, I had to sort of say, well, actually, I think, why don't you do the sympathetic version of that character? Because he's a main character. Uh, and even though it's 100 percent historically accurate for you to be that kind of twit, uh, no one else is going to want to uh, hang out with you. If this was, uh, you know, a network TV show, the first set of notes would be, uh, no, dial that part back, right? That's, you know, maybe the the, the walk-on villains who then get immediately eaten by the uh, a tiger and or Shoggoth uh, might uh, briefly indicate that they have those attitudes, but maybe, uh, you know, do a uh, a more likable version of that uh, character. And, and again, with, you know, goodwill amongst everybody, you can 
have things like that happen at the table in the sort of, you know, Spock, you half human computer, bah, you know, so the casual racism of, say, Star Trek in 1967 uh, was acceptable and is probably still dis- acceptable at the table uh, or at la- rather at most tables. So if people want to make fun of Vulcans and use what in on earth would have been harmful ethnic stereotyping, uh, go right ahead. And uh, in some tables, you can make jokes about elves or dwarves and everyone's cool with it. In other tables, they will say these are, you know, uh, problematic depictions of German immigrants and we shouldn't make fun of dwarves. And you say, fine, that's what we won't do. Uh, I ran a game in which, uh, which was set in the, in the enlightenment, in fact, in the late 18th century. And one of the characters uh, played an Irishman and being the Irishest person at the table, I was cool with the other characters making fun of him for being Irish whenever he rolled a critical failure, which turned out to be quite often because his dice were just cold most of the time. And that became a running bit of personality palaver. But if, you know, either an Irisher person or a person who was less comfortable with uh, that sort of style of humor uh, had been at the table, obviously, we would have figured out something else to make fun of Greg for. It's not like there's a shortage of dumb behavior at any game table that you can mock people for that is unconnected to their genotype or phenotype. And as you know, when the bird flies down and gives me $50 for saying phenotype, that is the universal sign that this hut is over. And we have to go and see what's in the next one along. Hey, 13th Age Adventurers. Whether your one unique thing is a robot hand or a deck of many futures. Whether you're friends with the Diabolist or frenemies with the Great Gold Worm. All are eventually drawn to one dark lure. The Underworld. The vast and mysterious realms that lie beneath the Dragon Empire. Deep within the Underworld lie adventure and treasure as well as disaster and death. But what is reward without risk? With the book of the Underworld designer Gareth Ryder Hanrahan reveals the Underworld secrets for 13th Age, including... The lands of the Underworld, the Underland, the kingdoms of the Hollow Realms, and what lies within the deeps. The mighty dwarven city of Forge. The domains of the Silverfolk Elves. The threats of Malice, the Drowfort. And the four kingdoms of the Mechanical Sun. Forgotten Gods, the Gnome Academy of Magic, Monsters, Magic Treasure, and more. For a limited time, get 10% off in print or PDF at the Pelgrane store with a voucher code STUFFWORLD. You will need the extra gold pieces for ropes and pulleys. That's the Book of the Underworld for 13th Age, voucher code STUFFWORLD at PelgranePress.com. The Napping Cats, The Sound of Wagner, and The Howl of the Walrus welcome us once more to that most commercial yet pointless of huts, the T-shirt justification hut. And Robin, uh, this one is all on you. Unlike the, uh, the nap cat, which I, or perhaps a parasitic wasp said I would do. This is you, Robin. You've found a picture and you've put it on a shirt. And, uh, why don't you tell America and the world where you got a photograph of a man in a bucket being menaced by a rifleman. Well, it's an old book illustration, and I tried to do an image search for it uh, today in order to research it, uh, and it is gone in the ether, but uh, I'm uh, still 100% confident that it was in a public domain source. I wouldn't have downloaded it otherwise. So this is an image of uh, 
looks like a 19th century attire, I'm going to say, uh, judging by the jaunty bow tie. Uh, it could almost be somewhat Poe-like. And uh, what we're looking at is a, uh, a man uh, with a mustache. He has almost sort of a John Wilkes Booth kind of vibe about him. He's carrying a rifle, and uh, he has another man in a barrel. And I'm going to guess that this is a, a wine barrel for crushing grapes, so not the the barrel, the sideways barrel that the uh, the wine will ultimately be uh, aged in, but rather a grape stomping uh, barrel with a nice lid on it. And uh, the man with the rifle uh, is looking unsympathetically at the man inside the barrel who is pleading, no doubt, uh, for his life or at least not to be sealed into the barrel. And so this became the basis of our three points in negotiation uh, shirt. And uh, so, Ken, we can go either uh, one way or the other with this. Uh, we can either talk about negotiation in-game and how to do it as a player, or we can uh, create a scenario around the incident suggested by the man in the barrel. So uh, which way uh, do you want to go in promoting our merch store? Well, it is uh, it is much to be regretted that you did not uh, find the secret origin of the man in barrel, because I feel like I prefer to start, as you might guess, from, you know, the, the facts on the ground, the engravings. So I'm happy to discuss either one, but I think if we're going to discuss the story of the man in the barrel, uh, we should maybe include some negotiation just to doubly justify the, the shirt. What do you say about that? Um, uh, very well, negotiate away. All right. So I feel like this barrel situation is a situation... And, you know, as you say, you, you see the sort of uh, 18th century vibe. I feel like this is one of those sort of um, uh, uh, latter-day Twain, early beer sort of stories where someone starts something and it gets more and more dire for them as they fail their their negotiation each time. So I, I feel like these two men met on the street, maybe in uh, San Francisco or, or um, uh, Denver or some bustling metropolis of the American West, uh, maybe in a, in a, a, a town in the Midlands in England uh, where the factories are burgeoning. And uh, they entered into a series of bets or a series of contests. And the, the man in the, uh, well, let's see, we'll, we'll call uh, uh, Mr. Mustache, and Mr. Temple, because you can see that he's got some uh, sort of gray on his temples, the other guy. So uh, Mr. Uh, Temple, I think, starts it because that's how these things work is uh, Mr. Temple is feeling full of himself and he accosts or stumbles into Mr. Mustache and he presents what he thinks is going to be a lead pipe cinch uh, to try and uh, rook Mr. Mustache, but he fails. Uh, Robin, do you have uh, thoughts on presenting uh, failed con games uh, or failed um, uh, come-ons? Do you think that's a, a fail-forward situation, as the kids like to say? You have thrown me this ball, so uh, let me take it. So in order to make this uh, useful in a game, I think what we're looking at here is, well, first of all, this could just be an illustration from a game of Skullduggery, which is uh, Pelgrane's uh, generic version of the Dying Earth rules, which is all about comeuppance. And this could absolutely be something that happens as one uh, character continues to uh, one up the other over a series of uh, bets in uh, uh, look 1870s, 1880s uh, San Francisco, let's say. Right. But in order to make it useful for a role-playing scenario, this presumably is uh, the antecedent action uh, for uh, something that we are, are going to investigate. And so I think clearly uh, what we, the, uh, the characters in the Barbary Coast, uh, have been called upon to investigate is the disappearance 
of the man in the barrel. And uh, we can uh, go one or of two ways on this. Uh, we can either make this the apparent incident that uh, people uh, heard Mr. Mustache leading away Mr. Temple, leading him down into the grape storage area in, in the winery where the disused grape barrels were. And uh, the presumption is that Mr. Temple was uh, sealed in the barrel uh, by Mr. Mustache. Uh, and therefore, uh, if you go and investigate that, you will find that something else happened, that you find Mr. Mustache, he denies uh, putting him in the, in the barrel, and that he disappeared uh, by some other means. And that way, uh, we uh, have that sort of image, we have that thing, we have uh, the discussion of the series of bets in which Mr. Temple repeatedly uh, tried to uh, swindle uh, Mr. Mustache. Perhaps Mr. Mustache came upon Mr. Temple uh, years after having originally been uh, swindled and took him down to the basement. And uh, he says, well, as far as I'm concerned, it certainly was my intention for him to die in that barrel. But uh, later, uh, my uh, my darling fiance told me to, uh, to relent. And therefore, I uh, went on down uh, to the barrel to free uh, Mr. Temple. And uh, when I looked for Mr. Temple, uh, he was gone. And so uh, the next question then for the players to investigate is, uh, who else uh, was Mr. Temple attempting to swindle? Uh, what would he be doing in San Francisco and the Barbary Coast? And uh, what sort of nerd trope element uh, do we want to add this uh, to this to make it a weird or, or supernatural mystery? So what, what other entity or force can do you think that Mr. Temple could possibly have uh, uh, angered by attempting to hornswoggle it? Okay. I think that we can, we, we can begin to sort of separate our options out and see which play with them, see which one we like better. Either uh, Mr. Temple is uh, one of the fictive devils who attempts to get the best of people. And in so many stories is instead gotten the best of and jammed into a, uh, let's say a vat that has been used exclusively to prepare communion wine. And that is why he could not get out, uh, because the sacredness of the grapes uh, prevented uh, Mr. Temple, who is, in fairness, a, a minor or a best middle management devil from from escaping. And so Mr. Mustache, perhaps unwittingly, perhaps wittingly, had the devil penned up in a wine vat for some period of time. Or Mr. Temple, unbeknownst to him, offended or angered some uh, soothsayer or other uh, hedge magician who then cursed Mr. Temple to forever be made the best of in negotiation. And uh, this can be the sort of origin story for a Emperor Norton sort of person who was uh, famously driven into imperial uh, self-regard by the collapse of his rice importing business, or it can be a, uh, a more picaresque story, low level street level magic story in which you have to find the soothsayer because uh, Mr. Temple is probably not the only person who has gotten up the soothsayer's nose. And therefore there's a lot of people who are just wandering around the Barbary coast carrying minor curses. And it turns out if you wander around the Barbary coast carrying minor curses, someone's going to burn San Francisco down if they're not careful. And that's uh, what you have to investigate. So either Mr. Temple is the supernatural entity and it was just buffaloed by uh, Yankee cunning and ingenuity and a rifle or uh, the supernatural entity brushed Mr. Temple and caused his unfortunate uh, situation. I'm going to uh, meld those two a little together a bit. The idea Great. of being hired by one low level devil in disguise to go and rescue another low level devil has some picaresque appeal to it, I have to say. But right. at the end of the day, that's a Mr. Johnson story. Mm -hmm. um, and the uh, players, I think, are going to be annoyed when they find out that they're um, helping the devil. But if 
Mr. Temple has been given a curse, and he knows that uh, what he needs to do in order to transfer the curse of terrible luck to somebody else is to find someone who is attempting to swindle him, and that he can therefore uh, cause them to take on the curse by also acting in bad faith. And so he's been cursed by a soothsayer. In this version, the soothsayer is like long ago. Could even be, we could make Mr. Temple uh, unnaturally youthful, right? This could have been something that he's uh, suffered in ancient Rome, say, for example. And he will uh, live in boredom and inconvenience and uh, pain and annoyance until he can transfer the curse to somebody else. And then he'll live out the rest of his natural span, maybe another 20, 30 years, but at least he'll have a little while of happiness after he transfers the curse. So his attempt then is to find uh, someone who wants to swindle him uh, with a promise of magic. So he's been telling people, I have this magical ability uh, and we'll have a series of bets. And he keeps waiting for someone to hit him with a, a dishonest bet and he can then transfer uh, the curse to. And so the reason that he was engaging uh, with Mr. Mustache in a series of, of bets was he was trying to get this uh, honest rifle-toting American to try and uh, somehow cheat him out of his magical ability. But because he was a, a steadfast son of the prairie, he refused to do so uh, to the point, even after Mr. Temple antagonized him to the point of having him stuffed in a barrel, he still refused to cheat him. And in fact, that is why he uh, stuffed him in a barrel, is that he realized, you're attempting, sir, to uh, traduce my good morals, and perhaps even suspected him of being a devil, which he uh, might uh, uh, say to the players in order to get that uh, image in there. But in fact, by the time the players uh, find out what's going on, the curse has been transferred to someone else in San Francisco, someone <laughs> that they... Mr. Temple's second guess, well, it turns out indeed to be someone who wanted to cheat him, because that would not have been hard in San Francisco in the 1880s. <laughs> exactly. And so our next, the, the question of the final mystery is, who has the uh, curse been transferred to? Uh, someone who is actually now uh, holding Mr. Temple, uh, trying to get him to take the curse back. So who do you have in mind, Ken, as the, the ultimate antagonist that the players have to go to? And so why do they want to rescue Mr. Temple, though? We're, we're running into one of those motivational uh, issues. Why, why do they care enough about Mr. Temple then to uh, want to? I guess the easiest one is someone who cares about Mr. Temple uh, has a reward for him, perhaps right. a uh, enterprising journalist who uh, is writing stories of the weird, perhaps even Ambrose Bierce himself. Is, yep. Can we can we uh, bend history to get Ambrose Bierce in this story? I'm absolutely certain we can bend history. It's not even that bendy because Ambrose Bierce is in San Francisco and he's a newspaper columnist and he's desperate for material. So yeah, he's, he's heard through his rumor mill that uh, the, there's a, a devil or an immortal. He's got two different versions of the story. They're maybe from ancient Rome, maybe from a, a different lost city that no one knows anything about. And he wants to interview the guy and find him. And he's willing to give you 20 bucks and free uh, want ads for a year. If you'll go and, uh, find Mr. Temple. Uh, yeah, you also free one ads for a year was worth something was worth. That was, that was a good deal. Uh, you also, of course, might have, you know, a woman who took pity on Mr. Temple because she saw him schlemieling his way through San Francisco. It might even be the sister of Mr. Mustache, uh, who, if we recall, uh, a good woman impelled him to open up the barrel and maybe let Mr. Temple out. Um, uh, or to, or to check on Mr. Temple. And so, uh, the good woman might have, uh, bent the player's heart or, or melted it a little bit, or she might have $20, who can say? Or the players might 
track down word that there is an immortal wandering around San Francisco, and they may have their own questions, uh, Bierce style or otherwise, for this immortal that they know through uh, divination or tarot tree or however that uh, there's a guy wandering around San Francisco who fell off Drake's boat, and he therefore knows where Drake buried his treasure. And if you could just, you know, do him a favor, he would, uh, he would tell you uh, the location of the treasure. And that might have been uh, a thing that, uh, Mr. Temple has left out there to attract, uh, swindlers to him, or it might be a real steer. And we, and we right. don't know. But if Mr. Temple is an immortal, he surely knows something that active occultist player characters might want to. Uh, perhaps there's an immortal gunslinger and there's, uh, no way to uh, stop him from hunting the player characters. But if they can get Mr. Temple's curse onto him, uh, maybe that would be the, the solution to their problem. So uh, now we just need sort of an antagonist for the the final scene. Who in uh, in San Francisco in this period would be a good person to have received the curse and uh, be holding uh, Mr. Temple a prisoner in a futile attempt to get the curse transferred out of him? How about the person who has received the curse is the actual and historical Tom Sawyer? who was a fireman in San Francisco in the 1860s. And then he uh, retired from the fireman to become a customs inspector. And now he's a customs inspector in the San Francisco customs house. And he may have disagreed with Mr. Temple about whether or not a certain item uh, could be imported and uh, officiously uh, used his power to get Mr. Temple to shut up. Mr. Temple, I'm sure, after uh, years of trying this, has got wheedling ways that uh, anger a, a bureaucrat like Tom Sawyer. But if Tom Sawyer has the curse, uh, it's for sure that what's going to happen is he's going to be hanging out with his old fireman buddies, and indeed he is going to start a fire and uh, burn down the city, uh, despite having saved it many, many times uh, as a young fireman. And so I think you can play games with uh, how mythical a Tom Sawyer is this, because, of course, the historical, not historical, the famous Tom Sawyer was a famous um, uh, scamp and attempter to get around people. So I think if we have our our real Tom Sawyer fireman also uh, inclined to talk people into doing his work for him and other ways behave like Tom Sawyer, he can still be a charming, uh, by now, a rapscallion of, of middle years. He's in his 50s, I think. But I think he makes a nice uh, historical moment for the uh, player character to stumble over. And then after they've undone the thing, it's not going to be a matter of beating up Tom Sawyer like they could, but it's going to be a matter of figuring out how to deal with the problem magically. And then as a favor, Tom Sawyer tells them about, oh, well, if you think this is bad, you should have seen the salamanders that we keep uh, penned up in a lead tube over uh, over in the fire station. And they will say, lead lead melts, Tom Sawyer. What's wrong with you? He's like, oh, yeah, we should probably have done something about that. And off they go on another adventure. Well, uh, if that's another adventure, that's a second scenario based on a, a T-shirt. And we only do one scenario for a T-shirt. So it's time for us to head into another hot and or segment. The Best of Asphageln is now available at DriveThruRPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled 
F-E-N-I-X. Can now be grabbed in special English editions. Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height. And such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis. And Pete Nash. Also find Dice, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory. And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic choose-your-adventures by Joe Dever. And if you speak Swedish, not English. That's Swedish, not English. You can delight in every original issue of Phoenix. And the new Sagebrush and Six Guns role-playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Askfageln on drive through Keep this podcast from getting stuck in a barrel by a rifle-wielding man by joining such beloved Patreon backers as... Roger Edge. Tristan Knight. Chris Lydon. Andrew Collins. And Luke Steyer. The rattle of the teletype machine, the blatting of the tannoy, uh, the alert signal chironing its way across your television, welcome us to a hut that has been ripped from the headlines. And today, beloved Patreon backer Jamie Twine has ripped news from the headlines, uh, saying... People in the UK and elsewhere in the world are being sent unsolicited bags of mystery seeds labeled as jewelry. Theories suggest it's part of some kind of internet scam, but what is the occult or alien truth behind this odd story? And I guess Jamie attached a version of the story from the BBC, but the story, of course, has blown up all over America. Uh, CBS News, for reasons unknown to me, seemed to have jumped on it early in the States. So if you Google Mystery Seeds uh, News, the CBS one will pop up. Reuters, of course, did a story. And uh, specialist agronomical journals have also been uh, looking into this question. So it's a it's a fraught question indeed, Robin. Yes. My favorite uh, little sniglet from the BBC story is that uh, Scotland has a chief plant health officer. <laughs> that's, a, that's a job in Scotland. I like that. Yeah, well, I mean, that's good, right? I mean, you want plants to be healthy. That's, that's, again, you uh, certainly I totally do in Scotland. I, I wonder if it's Lord Summerisle. <laughs> the duty of the chief uh, plant health officer is to murder an English virgin every 40 years to make sure that the plants stay healthy in Scotland. You know, p- plants can be thirsty on those uh, windswept uh, Scottish isles. Exactly. So the story is that people are getting these packets containing seeds Mostly from China. They're often labeled in Chinese. Sometimes there's one English word. Sometimes jewelry or rings is on the box. They get it. They open it up and there's mysterious seeds. And sometimes the seeds have a purple coating on them, which might be a herbicide or a fungicide or an insecticide or some other kind of side. We don't know. Uh, the seeds have been tested by Authorities, no doubt, including the Scottish Chief Plant Health Officer, but also the United States Department of Agriculture. And varieties of seeds that are sent to people include mustard, cabbage, morning glory, rose, hibiscus, mint, rosemary, lavender, and at least some of the seeds that I saw in in the news, they look sort of uh, woody and citrusy. So maybe there's also some orange pips and whatnot in there. Most of the packages come from China. A few of them come from Uzbekistan and Kyrgyzstan. And... As is the case, when the authorities are presented with uh, something inexplicable, they attempt to explicate it. So the explanation that beloved Patreon backer Jamie Twine alludes to is uh, the internet scam known as brushing. And that is when you have a vendor and you need five-star customer reviews uh, so that the site will move you up in the search ratings. 
uh, and therefore you make more money. The way you get customer reviews is you steal people's addresses off the internet. Uh, you mail them something cheap, which you label in your system as something expensive. So you send them seeds, but you label it jewelry and then you fake. Right. And sometimes in addition to seeds, people are getting ping pong balls and keyboard vacuum cleaners and uh, all sorts of other very light, inexpensive things to ship. So it's not just seeds. Right. Anything light and cheap because now the, you know, Alibaba or whoever the, uh, the, the vendor is, or rather the, the site is, has tracked that an actual package went out to that address. You then fake that person's account on Alibaba or whatever the site is, and you type up a five-star review for the jewelry that they just got. And this is basically a way to build your SEO in that online market and thus get uh, fat profits when people want to order your actual jewelry. And they will find you instead of, you know, the next jeweler down. Right. Uh, and, and the else. reason they actually have to ship things to actual people who are then baffled by them is there the Amazon or Alabama or whichever big giant commerce site it is has to have in their system the fact that a shipment was made. So right. That, they have to have a provable, you know, shipment occurred. Right. So that you are completely unwitting as the you're not even the victim of this scam. It's more that the. Uh, the platform is a victim and the other customers who then go to this person's fraudulent site instead of somebody else, some more honest uh, marketer, uh, I guess, are, are defrauded as well. But it's a way of gaming uh, the system. So you're not necessarily hurt when you receive uh, something weird in the mail, except, of course, when we introduce an element of, of uh, menace and danger. And so the obvious things that we don't need to go into much detail because they're obvious are, of course, triffids. This right. could be a triffid implantation uh, system, and it could be, uh, you know, a, a an attempt at warfare of one region in the world to send their triffid seeds to have them uh, planted somewhere else. Seems unwise to me because my triffids spread. Once you get them going, that's yep. a problem. The other thing could be uh, pod people, right? This is just a new way of distributing uh, pod people. You get people to, to plant the seeds, and then they uh, turn into uh, that also uh, a common vegetable menace. Uh, but uh, like I said, those are the obvious uh, choices. Right. Now, to uh, back up the pod people theory, we do have to deal with the testimony of a man from Arkansas. And the man from Arkansas told the New York Times, so you know it must be true, that he ordered a blue zinnia seeds from Amazon and got extra seeds instead of just, you know, getting them out of nowhere. And he planted them, which you're not supposed to do. And he said it looks like a giant squash plant adding that it was really pretty. So I think pod people is, 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 is moving up in the, in the, in the rankings. Uh, the reason you're not supposed to plant them, uh, according to health officials from Scotland to Kentucky is that they are worried about invasive species because you get a, a seed that is common as dirt in China. You plant it in the common dirt of Kentucky. And suddenly you're, you're looking at the second coming of kudzu. You're looking at another uh, nightmarish situation. And then other people have speculated that um, uh, this is either agro-terrorism, the intentional spreading of invasive species to uh, thwart American, or in this case, Scottish agriculture, or, of course, bioterrorism, that, of course, seeds make great little uh, balls of virus. Uh, one hardly believes that the Chinese need to be going around, faffing around with seed shipments if they want to spread a virus all over the world. But, you know... 
uh, people have to make things up and they're all very excited when, when people are reporting seeds. It, it is very, very widespread. And again, the fun ruiners at the Department of Agriculture suggest that it's just people have gotten more into gardening, uh, because they've been stuck at home and therefore the number of seeds ordered everywhere has gone up and therefore more addresses have shown up where Chinese, uh, seed, uh, companies can scrape them for their brushing scams. I think that that is maybe over explaining the case and certainly does not lead you to any sort of um, global druid conspiracy or something that we would like to talk about. So I, th I think you can say maybe uh, these are druids, Robin, you can't rule it out because the central Asian aspect of it makes me think that it's not Chinese masterminds that are sending seeds around the world. Also, that seems a little domestic for, uh, for your Fu Manchus and whatnot, but the Tokarians, if you remember, Robin, were a Celtic people or Celtic-like people. They were the sort of other end of the uh, Indo-European blob that uh, blorched out of uh, Ukraine in 3500-ish BC. Um, and they they wore plaid. Uh, they had red hair. They made mummies. All of that mostly was just by dying in the insanely dry Taklamakan desert. But all of these things indicate to me, Robin, that there is a druid mummy somewhere in Central Asia, and he, she, or they, there might be multiple mummies, are uh, sending out these seeds to regrow the sacred plants that they need to transmit their consciousness from uh, continent to continent. Um, so Tarkarian uh, mummies are, are great. And of course, however, when I uh, rip something from the headlines, I think of This is Normal Now, which is the uh, fourth sequence in the Yellow King role-playing game, which takes things in the modern world and updates them to add uh, Yellow King uh, elements to it. And so uh, originally, uh, I was casting about before uh, Jamie gave us this perfect uh, rip from the headlines to look at, I was looking for another news story to use as a sample of that. There was an incident in Toronto where shirtless men with chainsaws were uh, on the rampage in uh, one of our beaches. But then uh, as that story developed, it turned out it already had an anti-mask element in it because it turned out that the rampaging chainsaw dudes were the good guys and they'd used the chainsaws to saw up a DJ station set up on the beach by a bunch of anti-mask people. And whenever a story in the news has masks in it, it's no longer suitable for this is normal now because that's already there. You don't need that. Um, right. And so, and, uh, and also people just keep saying, no mask, no mask, and it distracts you. Yes, exactly. That uh, it's it's a a joke that I will uh, leave to others to do. So in this case, I think that uh, to make it a this is normal now thing, I would go back to brushing and the idea that that the uh, conspiracy is attempting to uh, create Carcosan uh, energy connections to people uh, by. Um, quasi stealing their identities by sending them seeds. And then uh, that is then uh, the equivalent of having read the play or, you know, so you might get the, the seeds and uh, uh, wrapped in the seeds is a page uh, of the play, or perhaps you uh, do plant the seeds against the advice of the uh, chief plant health officer of your region. And there are particular a shade of yellow, a yellow that you've never seen before. And then as they grow, uh, they're, they're sunflowers, but uh, the the seeds in the sunflowers arrange themselves uh, in the yellow sign pattern. And so that it is a new way of attempting to recruit uh, sort of uh, the way that Mr. Wilde did a new crop, uh, shall we say, of uh, yellow king uh, uh, influenced people. And so uh, the idea with scenarios in that game is that they start off seeming somewhat 
normal and then get weird. So it may well be that one of the uh, player characters gets a package of strange seeds in the mail. Uh, they are already suspicious enough uh, about this that uh, some weird internet scam can't possibly be a coincidence. And then they decide to try and investigate the source of the seeds. And if you have introduced any weird plant in any of the uh, three previous uh, segments, uh, you could have that uh, coming back. So uh, in my game, for example, a uh, a monkey's hand tea leaf was an important uh, visual motif in the Paris segment. So indeed, if you plant these, uh, they might turn into monkey's hand plants that uh, uh, create a, a strange uh, resonance with the uh, previous uh, set of characters. And so uh, the great thing about the reality horror of the Yellow Kings, it's uh, fairly easy to take anything uh, weird and disturbing and inexplicable in the news and to figure out uh, how it could possibly uh, lead the characters closer to Carcosa. I like the notion that you brushed past, as it were, at the beginning where you said um, I, about identity theft and that the, uh, that the notion is to sort of close the circuit by having the person plant the seed. And I like the notion that the symbolic action of planting the seed that you received is the thing that roots you into the other world that sent the seed or the other uh, the Carcosan universe. And I love the notion that as you plant the seed and as it grows, you start having flashes of your life in aftermath, right? Because you're connected to the world where Castain already, uh, Carcosa already broke out. Uh, the Castain influences has been all over America and Canada. And you have the sort of flashes and you, the player character in your life, uh, don't understand why you're having these flashes of this other world. But you, the player are like, Oh my God, the, 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 the seeds have linked the worlds somehow. And while you, the player character were a heroic anti-Carcosan fighter, hundreds, if not thousands, if not tens of thousands of people all across the region have been getting these seeds. And some of them have been planting them. And maybe some of them were, old castane resistance diehards or were missing wizards or maybe the brookfield horticultural society in chicago was the equivalent of the bronx zoo uh, and it's where the castane regime planted weird plants from all over the world and attempted to grow carcosan plants and uh, the the guy who ran that is escaped the war crimes trials and is sending seeds to transport his consciousness into a new world and restart the Castain regime with himself, of course, as the uh, Lysenko slash Richard Dare of the new regime, breeding uh, literally uh, Carcosan energy as they uh, the plants trope towards a black star or the, the moon uh, in front of a tower. In fact, it could be that uh, all sorts of people receive the seeds, but there's something about them. There's They, they have enough Carcosan resonance that only... People who had some sort of numinous impact, who were important figures uh, in the aftermath reality, are the people who then feel tempted and, uh, in many cases, uh, plant uh, the seeds in our world. So it's a, actually just a it's a way of identifying people in the this is normal world who were important in that other uh, realm and therefore have energy and potential around them and are dangerous or can be used. And so uh, the first thing you do is. You have all the players roll composure to see if the, and the if you fail your composure test, you get a shock card that called you planted the seeds. And mm -hmm. that is what makes uh, the members of this uh, shadowy organization aware of the fact that uh, in this is normal now, typically you're sort of a, a sort of a schlumpier down uh, graded level version of the heroic characters from Aftermath. 
And uh, this is how they're round, rounding up all the people. And as you discover others who have planted the seeds, they are similarly alternate versions of the uh, key Game Master characters that you encountered in in Aftermath. And, and this doesn't even begin to get into the possibilities because I believe in, this is normal now, one of the characters is is uh, possibly a, a weed dispensary operator. The whole notion of seeds of psychogenic, hallucinogenic, otherwise entheogenic plants, uh, if the seeds include uh, cannabis seeds and they come from Carcosa and you smoke the weed of Carcosa, do you get visions of, uh, of, of the Lake of Holly, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, over and above the notion of just the seeds being the connection, they also can exist to do the good old occult drug story, which yeah. is not quite as hoary as we put on the King in Yellow play, but is certainly something to run. And it's going to be in the back of the characters' minds, especially if one of them runs a weed dispensary, they're going to have all manner of notions of, what exactly reality-altering drugs do. Yeah, especially if you use your yellow vape pen. Uh, right. Well, on that note, I think we've uh, well plumbed the uh, eerie significance of this uh, story that we've ripped from the headlines, and we can go back a little further in time uh, to another weird tale. Suit up, agents of Delta Green. Your battle to save humanity from unnatural horrors is going beyond the Beltway. With Delta Green the Labyrinth now shipping in beautiful and weaponizable hardcover to a secure dead drop near you. Written by Delta Green co-creator John Scott Tynes, this all-new collection of organizations dives deep into the fissures of America in the new millennium. From the loathsome servitors of the 1%, to the hard-scrabble faithful of the Rust Belt, from the abusive warrens of the internet, to the lonely chambers of every human heart, from the toxic legacy of the Cold War, to the doomed idealists trapped in a world they cannot save. American life has entered a labyrinth of twisty, turny passages. And while there are many ways in, there is no way out. Unless knowledge is a way out. In which case, find Arc Dream Publishing's Delta Green the Labyrinth at your game purveyor of choice. Disclaimer, knowledge is not a way out. It's time once more to wend our way up the crickety cobweb stairs where the uh, king of the fire salamanders on his portrait is uh, still looking very smug about what he did to uh, Madame Blavatsky. Uh, but we don't have time for that because we've got our box from Parker Brothers uh, that we're going to take in and uh, plunk in front of the consulting occultists as we demand to know uh, what was up with the uh, Ouija board. Ouija board. Uh, what's the history of that and who was its creator, Elijah Bond. Tell us, consulting occultist, tell us. Well, Elijah Bond was a Baltimore lawyer. Uh, I think that is what would be on his business cards, but he also invented things. Uh, he invented a steam boiler. He has a number of patents. He was a Freemason, probably would have been very proud to let you know that. He was a Confederate soldier, despite being from Maryland. So, well, we have to uh, cock a uh, unfriendly eye at Mr. Bond Esquire. But for our purposes, his interest begins when he patents the Ouija board uh, in 1891. And Ouija boards are a specific uh, trademarked case. Uh, he also gets the trademark uh, the week before. Right. And I like the fact that you can patent 
A device to communicate with the beyond. That's good. That is good. Well, the patent does not say to communicate with the beyond. The patent says basically to transmit the thoughts of the user. So um, whether the thoughts come from the beyond or from your desire to say that Jenny actually likes Garth, that's between you and the spirits. Um, anyway, the talking board or spirit board, as it is known, if you don't want to infringe on a trademark, begins... Back in the 1850s, we have patents for a uh, an electrically operated one going back as far as uh, 1854. Alan Kardec, the great uh, Breton uh, spiritualist, writes about talking boards in a couple of different contexts. Uh, the most popular one before uh, Elijah Bonds was a table that spun around underneath a metal needle that holds held still. Elijah Bonds' great insight was... How about if you just move the little planchette around and the board stays still? <laughs> yes. At least one person with their fingers on the planchette is going to uh, subtly move it. Right. Ideally, more than one. And having come up with this idea, he and a bunch of friends, relatives, and fellow Masons established uh, the Kennard Novelty Company. They incorporated it the day before Halloween, 1890, with an eye, one hopes, to future uh, straight-to-cable movies. And they, they set it up. And uh, they opened a Chicago branch office in 1892 as their way to settle a dispute with people who were infringing on the Ouija board trademark. It becomes the Ouija Novelty Company in 1892 after they uh, reshuffle the corporate chairs and is run at that point by Colonel Washington Bowie. The Colonel is in uh, quote marks because it is a civil title, which he got from being a customs inspector uh, and a guy named William Fold, who was in the census of 1890 as a painter and glazier and somehow winkled his way into a directorship of the Ouija novelty company in but two years. And we don't know the William fold backstory. It must've been Freemason uh, connections. I would must think. must've been Freemasonry. Although fold doesn't officially become a Freemason until a little bit later. Anyway, fold is a very close friend of Colonel Washington Bowie and basically uh, begins running the whole operation. So, our, our man, Elijah Bond, uh, doesn't have to put up with this. He moves to Charleston, West Virginia, uh, around 1905, maybe a little earlier. And he thinks, well, I've invented the Ouija board. I should get to make my own Ouija board. And right. he, so he's been pushed out by, from the company at this point? It seems like he has. Either he sold his patent outright. He's never on any of the founding documents of the Kennard Novelty Company. He assigns his patent rights to officers of that company. And... um He's not listed on that company's, you know, uh, board of directors or anything. Uh, his nephew-in-law runs it, so he must have thought, well, I'm obviously going to get my share, and I don't know if he sold the patent for, like, you know, a straight sum or if he got, like, a percentage or how it works. Probably a straight sum, given that he uh, did not continue to uh, run the company, but who can say? Anyway, he moves to uh, West Virginia. He tries to patent a new board called the Nirvana Board. And the uh, great innovation of the Nirvana Board in 1907 is that it has a swastika on it. And so you can find on the swastika, I think, what part of uh, of the afterlife your spirit is from. And uh, that doesn't sell. So he sort of gives up on that, moves back to Baltimore. Right. And of course, in 1907, that... Uh, it fails to sell for different reasons than different reasons. Yes. Brought it out in 1933. Right. People are tired of swastikas in 1907 for entirely other reasons. And he can't really make a go of it, I guess, or gets bored in Charleston, West Virginia. He's mostly a lawyer there. 
uh, moves back to Maryland, uh, has a stroke in 1919, and then dies in 1921, and he's buried uh, in a cemetery outside Baltimore, where, years later, a man named Robert Murch discovered Elijah Bond's unmarked grave in Greenmount Cemetery, uh, discovered <laughs> it in 2007, and apparently Robert Murch is a guy who gets things done. He's a fixer, and he goes to a monument company and says, build me a monument worthy of Elijah Bond, and he goes to a bunch of area locals. I don't know if he approaches Parker Brothers. I assume they show him the door, but um, he builds a, uh, he ha- causes to be erected, rather, a gravestone with a Ouija board on it for Elijah Bond's grave. And it, it gets put up into in 2008. And now you can go to Greenmount Cemetery, Baltimore, and listen to the spirits. One assumes the spirit of Elijah Bond, but also whatever other spirits are about, as long as you can hold the planchette sideways, because it's not on the top of the gravestone where you'd think it would be. It's on the side of the gravestone. But it's it's a, it's, it's a lovely monument to a man who, while probably not super lovely, was at least someone who brought innocent joy into um, uh, teenage sleepover parties. And who could have a better monument than that, Robin? Uh, the ongoing adventures of the uh, company, uh, William Fold gets all of the rights. Uh, Bo- Colonel Washington Bowie finally transfers all the rights and patents that he's held to Fold in 1919 and fold goes into huge production, uh, builds a three story factory with 36,000 square feet of work surface. Uh, he tells a newspaper reporter from the Baltimore sun that he has made $3 million uh, by 1920 off Ouija boards in total profit, which in 1920 was a lot of money. Right. And this is a per- uh, one of the many American periods of spiritualist revival. So Right. The, the post-World uh, post War One globally became a huge period for seances and talking to the dead in general. And uh, fold by aggressively moving against people who tried to patent other kinds of Ouija boards, managed to keep the market open. He basically discovered someone was selling low-cost Ouija boards and uh, came out with his own low-cost Ouija board. Well, spirits are very vigilant about intellectual property right. rights. They are. That's one of the things they care about. That and drumming. They're like uh, Metallica in that way. And then uh, in 1927, William Fold falls off the roof of the Ouija factory and dies. And uh, that is the end of William Fold. His kids continue the Ouija company. They attempt to launch an electrical uh, Ouija board that lights up in 1933. It turns out in the Depression, people may or may not want to talk to the dead, but they don't want to spend that kind of money to do it. Uh, so that fails. The Parker Brothers Company finally buys the patents and trademarks of the Ouija board in 1966. So now if you uh, say something is a Ouija board, you have to get the permission of the Brothers Parker or, as it happens, of Hasbro, who uh, agglomerated Parker Brothers back in whenever it was that happened. So a beloved international game company, uh, one that also controls in many ways yours and my livelihoods, Robin, is now in charge of communication with the dead. And if that doesn't make you feel good, I don't know what can. And uh, they, of course, still license the Ouija name to other media, most notably a, a series of uh, movies, which I've not seen. Have you seen them? Is, is one of them by Mike Flanagan, maybe? I think he did the Ouija prequel. Oh, it turns out it is. He did the prequel, Robin, Ouija Origin of Evil. 
And apparently people liked that better than they liked the original Ouija, which goes to show there you go. That's the Godfather two of Ouija movies, I guess. Yes. Uh, so uh, it is interesting that this major corporation, uh, which is produces a product that a lot of people uh, believe to be a, uh, a doorway to hell, not only uh, sells it, but also licenses a uh, series of movies in which it is revealed to be a doorway to hell. Well, I mean, that's called marketing, Robin. I mean, if you have a doorway to hell and we haven't talked about the various doorways to hell scattered across the length and breadth of this fair land, but if you have one, by goodness, why wouldn't you market it? I mean, the, the devil would want you to. I think even God would want you to. He would say, well, yeah, that's just, you know, that's fair warning. You should tell people. Put up a sign. <laughs> I, I think everyone should be on board with telling people that Ouija boards are a doorway to hell. Except, I guess, maybe Parker Brothers. And as you say, they've they've decided that uh, the devil's money spends just like everybody else's. And so, uh, once again, we see that something that uh, you think of as being uh, very old-timey is old-timey only in the sense that it goes back to the, the 19th century. And uh, it has always been an interesting case of uh, something that is both a mass market product and uh, something over which an aura of uh, delicious uh, transgression hangs over. But it is sort of more uh, about kids parties and stuff. Are there people who seriously think of the Ouija board as, as part of any occult uh, practice? Or do you have to invent your own more numinous seeming, less manufactured uh, talking board in order to uh, hold your head up high at the next uh, uh, occultist meeting? I mean, I, I think you have to sort of break that question apart a little bit because I think every teenager who plays with a Ouija board at a sleepover in some part of them believes that that is different than just playing, you know, Monopoly, that it's not the same kind of game, that the game is at the very least a way in which things unsaid can become said. So Jenny right. does, in fact, like Garth, whatever it happens to be. And that well, level and it's certainly of, not a game in the sense that it has no object, right? It's, right, it's an activity. Yeah. It's a toy, mm -hmm. a toy way to hell. <laughs> and by the way, uh, you'll be glad to know the IRS taxed it as a toy. And the Ouija board company fought that to the Supreme Court. They said, it is not a toy. It is a doorway to hell. And <laughs> the IRS was like, Doorway to hell or not, it's going to pay taxes like a toy. And the Supreme Court um, uh, uh, did not grant that case certiorari. So according to U.S. tax law, it's a toy. But anyway, I feel like when you play with that toy, you are engaging at the very least in the willingness to believe in the uh, supernatural. And you're playing with that feeling. Uh, and whether or not you genuinely believe, I think you know, may change from second to second as the planchet shifts around and Jenny swears she is not either shoving it and, and fun occurs. And the fun is, is spooky in a way that you know exists, but I don't think you can quantify. Now, I think real genuine occultists, boring uh, people who talk about vibrations and read Blavatsky on purpose, I think they basically say, no, it's a toy. Stop messing around. Mostly because with everyone's fingers on it, it's harder to uh, do whatever kind of chicanery they actually want to do to convince you that, no, they've got a channel to the dead. Well, you don't have to hire them if you can just go buy something. Right. From, you can you can buy well, a you toy can't from, buy it from Toys R Us anymore, but Amazon, I guess. Right. No, I'm sure you can. I'm sure you can source a Ouija board any number of places. I my Ouija board, by the way, Robin, is sourced from a local artist. Uh, I bought it at a horror film festival and it has uh, images from uh, scary things to do in the dark on it. So it's the best Ouija board. I think that the sort of uh, fancy Dan official occultists look down on the folk occult almost as much 
as uh, Fancy Dan uh, skeptics and people who don't believe in true love or, or angels or anything fun uh, look down on, on the folk occult. I think the folk occult gets sort of mocked and spat on by everybody. But if I'm going to say which, you know, which one is, is realer, I think Jenny and her friends at the slumber party have just as much claim uh, to being the real occult as any um, uh, neo-pagan coven or a bunch of uh, theorists about the, the, the root races do. So my flag would be planted uh, with Jenny and her friends. Uh, not that I don't love everybody else in the, in the occult world, but I don't think that anyone's got a particularly high horse on which to make fun of other people. Right. And certainly if you are running a horror scenario with teenage characters and the first scene is you're at a, a slumber party with the Ouija board, uh, which one of you engages with it? All of the players around the table know to go, oh, no, did we have to? And then you might have to make them make composure tests or sense trouble tests. Uh, but uh, certainly the player characters, the, the player characters might not know that it's trouble. You might have to find a way for them to not know that it's trouble. But the characters uh, certainly do. And so uh, that makes uh, ordinary folk uh, horror, which is different than the cinematic folk horror, I think a, uh, a redolent uh, source uh, for, uh, I don't know, the sort of thing you could make a series of movies, uh, one of which is good. Yeah, I think so. Uh, and on that note, I think it's time for us to, uh, let me just check the planchette. Oh, it's saying we've run over time, so. It's saying goodbye. 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 Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Ask for Gown. Arc Dream. Dark Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question-asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Ensure that this podcast's planchette never lands on goodbye by joining such prophetic backers as... Robert Dean. Alexander Zimmerman. Joshua Brumley. Luke Silburn. And Michael Bowman. Wear this show or drink it from a mug with Ken Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Grab the justified t-shirt, three points in the negotiation on twitter he's at kenneth height and he's at robin d laws see you next time and once again we will talk about stuff